Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew called The Authority of the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, as we hear a message entitled, The Lord of All Nature. a discussion that dominated the life of the early church. It's a discussion that lasted for more than 400 years. You know, living in the kind of culture that we do today, many of us won't understand this discussion. I mean, what I mean to say is this. In our culture, the question of relevancy and of immediate application is always central to our discussion of the Bible. How does it relate to me? Does it help strengthen my marriage or help me to deal with my anxiety or my money problems? Or does it heal my illness? Or does it help me give purpose in life or help me in how to retire or how to get started in life? All of these things are in our age the very big issues. And so it's surprising to moderns to think that that ancient people struggled with whether or not Jesus was homoousios or homoousios. That is, was he one substance with the Father or was he of like substance to the Father? Does Jesus have one or two natures? That is, does he actually have a divine nature and a human nature? And, and since that seems to be the case, exactly how do these two natures interact within the one person? Is there a mingling of the two natures, or are the two natures united without mingling? Does one nature do some things the other nature does not do? You know, I know, I know. For some of us, our eyes are already glazing over, and we're going back to what for our culture is the ultimate question. I mean, how does it impact me? I mean, how is that relevant to my life and the things that I'm facing? See, many of us can't even imagine a world where the questions like these not only dominated the discussion, but the answer to them was essential to even thinking about salvation. I mean, look at it this way. Imagine for a moment you're looking through a telescope and you're staring at one of the planets. Let's say it's, it's Saturn with its rings. And, and suddenly, the enormity of what you're seeing overwhelms you. In that moment, you lose yourself and your issues. You're not asking how this is relevant to you. You're lost in wonder, something that speaks of magnificence and greatness and even the wonder and majesty of the Creator. See, when you share this experience with someone else, you really don't expect someone to say, well, how does that help me with my self-esteem? In other words, there are some things that so fill us with wonder that the wonder of what we're seeing rather than the relevance to ourselves, becomes the greatest factor. Worship is supposed to be like that, and so is thinking about Jesus. Now, of course, the identity of the person of Jesus does have personal relevance. Of course, understanding him as he truly is, is necessary so that we turn to a true Savior and not an idol an idol constructed by, you know, the whimsical fancies of our own imagination. Yes, who Jesus truly is matters to our personal lives. But when that's all we ever ask, it's clear that our lives have never been overwhelmed by something so much greater and significant than our lives. You see, at some point in time, we should see Jesus as more magnificent than looking through the Hubble telescope or standing before the Grand Canyon 
or experiencing the Arctic Northern Lights. At some point in time, the grandeur of Jesus should startle the senses and we should simply lose ourselves as we find ourselves gazing at him. See, I think that's what's missing in so much of contemporary Christianity. Even the way we worship and what we sing, the idea of simply being staggered and overwhelmed and amazed at the portrait of Jesus we find in our Bible. See, I hope to recapture a little bit of that in our study today. So we're studying Matthew chapter 8 to 10 in a series that we've called The Authority of the King. Matthew 8 to 10 represents the second in a series of five grand themes that make up this book. In this section, we notice three series of three miracles. The first three miracles dealt with the healing power of Jesus and his ability to heal the leper, the Roman centurion's servant, and then an incredible night of healing in the village of Capernaum. Now we begin with the second round of three miracles. This will include the calming of the storm, the healing of two demon-possessed men, and the healing of a paralyzed man. So let's study the first in this second set of three miracles. I'm reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith! Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So let's notice how this goes. This account actually happens after Jesus chose the twelve, so I assume that it's his twelve disciples that follow him into the boat. And just so we know, the reason those men got stuck in a howling, raging storm that was about to swamp them, well, it's because they followed Jesus into the boat. If they had not been following him, this stuff would not have happened to them. Now, the reason I point that out is that sometimes Jesus deliberately leads his followers into the storm. It's his will that his followers should be so overwhelmed with those things they can't control, and in that, to see him in a way they've, they've never imagined him before. So imagine the scene. Jesus has been preaching and he's tired. No, not just tired. He's exhausted. As is common on the Sea of Galilee, storms are going to come up very suddenly. The Sea of Galilee, and by the way, it's not a sea or a saltwater body. It's, it's simply named the Sea of Galilee, but it's, but it's really a lake. It's a little more than 200 meters below sea level, but it's surrounded by mountains. It's a place where hot rising air suddenly meets cold air over the mountains, and it often results in sudden and unexpected and and very violent storms. More than one fisherman has lost his life because of that. Now, Matthew, who, by the way, was in that boat, tells us that the boat was being swamped. The type of boat they were in was probably very much like a boat that was recently discovered in the Sea of Galilee. The remains of a 2,000-year-old fishing boat was found there several years ago. Now, it could hold 15 men. It was about 26 and a half feet long, 7 and a half feet wide, and it was about 4 and a half feet high. And so the boat was not tiny, but it wasn't overly large. And, and those of you who sail will know exactly what a, a 26-foot sailing boat looks like. This is a massive storm. It's very dangerous. Everyone's shouting. They're rowing. They are reefing the sail. They're bailing water. They're ditching any cargo that can be ditched. And they're losing the battle. 
And Jesus, because he is so exhausted, remains asleep. He's so weary, he's almost comatose. He exhibits the the same weakness we see in any man. After the amount of effort he's exerted, one simply can't stay awake. No matter what, sleep simply claims him and he doesn't rise. So notice what they do. They wake him and notice why. They know that he can save them. Why? Because he miraculously makes blind people see and and lame people walk and and paralyzed people stand up and, and demons leave. And if he can do that, he can save them now. So hear me, they believe that he can save them. And that's why, as I read this story, all that really should happen now is is for Jesus to calm the storm. I mean, right? Instead, he tells them they're men of little faith. I mean, little faith. We just told you that we believe you can save us. I mean, what more can you want? But notice the issue for Jesus is the issue of fear. Why are you afraid? See, I love what D.A. Carson said about this passage. He said, Jesus' rebuke is therefore not against skepticism of his ability, nor against the fear that the disciples, like others, might drown. They lacked faith not so much in his ability to save them as in Jesus as king, whose life could not be lost in a storm, as if the elements were out of control and Jesus himself was the pawn of chance. That's what it means for Jesus to be king. He's the king of the storm. He is the king of nature. He is king or Lord of all. And nature can't destroy its creator. They they should have seen that. Now, now that Matthew's told us this, we do well to ask ourselves what it means. Now, we have seen in the last section what it costs to follow the king. That is, we need to give up earthly status and we need to make him a priority above everything. But now we see what it means to follow the king. We follow him into the storm, and as we do, there we find him Lord of the storm. In other words, Jesus will deliberately lead his followers into the storm. That's his intent. And there are times when you follow him that he deliberately wants to place you in danger and trial and fear. And to put this matter plainly, being a follower of Jesus is meant to give you trouble and storms. Paul said that. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This month, request your free copy of the five-message series, Lessons for the Church, as our free Bible resource on CD. This is a special compilation of messages from Dr. Newfeld that speaks directly into the life of the church. From the birth of the church to Christ's return, God has created and chosen the church to be his means for communicating the gospel to the world. In these selected messages, Dr. Newfeld presents the church as it was designed and how it remains vital, relevant, and essential for our day. Please request your copy of Lessons for the Church today and remember to pray and support your local church, the churches in your community, and in fact around the world. Call for your copy of Lessons for the Church at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. But why would Jesus deliberately lead his disciples into the storm? To teach faith? Well, yeah. To test their love for him? Yes, I think so. 
See, we might argue that he's doing exactly what Moses did to Israel. He led them deliberately to the Red Sea where they were hemmed in and where Pharaoh would seem to have them at his mercy. And at that moment, Israel was to learn that the Lord God controls the Red Sea and he controls the armies of Egypt and that their hope was not in chariots and horses, but in the name of the Lord God. They had to learn who God was. And so what is it that the disciples are to learn? Is it not the identity of the man who lay exhausted in the boat as the storm was raging and and threatening to drown them? Yeah, that's what they're supposed to learn. They must learn that, that the man they were following was the Lord of all of nature. It is a merciful hand that led them to the storm. And by the way, if I might interject here, it's also the merciful hand of God that leads us into places where storms come into our lives. Now, before we leave that lesson behind, I I want us to imagine what the disciples saw. Jesus so exhausted from his ministry, even a howling gale does not awaken him. And then moments later, after they've gotten him awake and he rubs the sleep out of his eyes and steadies himself in the boat, he has a look around and then he speaks to nature and nature obeys his voice. I mean, how do you put that together? This very human being, tired, frail, with the voice of the king of creation who commands nature and it bows to his will. How can a frail man be the Lord of creation? Now, what's the response to that? Look again at verse 27. It says, and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, as I've said, for over 400 years after this event, the followers of Jesus have struggled to understand False doctrines about who Jesus was began to circulate. In the year A.D. 361, in order to explain what the disciples experienced, a man named Apollinaris, he was the the bishop of Laodicea, he taught that the one person of Christ had a human body, but not a human mind or spirit. He taught that the mind and the spirit of Christ were, were from God, but that his body was from the earth. Now, if that were true, then it must mean that the divine simply occupied a human body. But but what would that mean? Well, that would mean at the most fundamental level that Jesus was not human the way we are, and therefore he did not partake in our humanity. But there's more. I mean, what would we then do with Hebrews 4.15, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are and yet without sin. Or what would we make of John 1 verse 14, which says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, clearly, unless we see God fully in human flesh, fully human, we're not talking about what the disciples saw when when they saw Jesus. I mean, clearly Apollinaris was leading people astray. And then in the year A.D. 428, a very popular Bible teacher, he was the bishop of Constantinople. man's name was Nestorius. He might have taught that there were two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person. And then the leader of a monastery in Constantinople, a man named Eutyches. He taught that the human nature in Jesus was taken up and absorbed into the divine nature so that he changed and a third kind of nature resulted. That is, Jesus was neither fully human nor fully divine, but was a third kind of a person, humanity absorbed into divinity. 
Now, that's but a sampling of the kind of teaching that was being heard all around the church, and the teaching was confusing. What sort of man is this? The question the disciples had asked each other in the boat, that discussion dominated the church. How can you have a man who shows all the weakness of humanity so so that he falls asleep in a boat, yet at the same time stands up in that same boat and merely utters a word and all nature obeys his voice? What sort of a man is this? I mean, that discussion dominated the church. See, the answer to the question is the central question, not just for the church. It's the most important question the human race has ever faced. If this man lived among us, and he did, and if eyewitnesses witnessed this, and they did, who is this that lived among us? I mean, what kind of splendor are we looking at? And with all the false and confusing views of Jesus that were circulating around the church, believers were in confusion asking the question the disciples asked that night, what sort of man is this? So finally, on November 1st, A.D. 451, in the, in the city of Chalcedon, it was just outside of Constantinople or, or modern-day Istanbul, leaders of the church decided to meet together and they poured over every single reference in the New Testament that spoke of the nature of Jesus and they examined the true meaning of every say and put it together in a way that every single branch of Christianity has confessed from that day forward to our day. Here's what they said, and I quote, We then, following the Holy Fathers, and by the way, when they say the Holy Fathers, they mean what true teachers of Scripture have taught from the beginning of the church. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. You know, so much could be said about that, but one thing remains certain. If the cost of following Jesus means being stripped of every earthly advantage, if would-be disciples were being asked to abandon everything this world holds dear and, and take up their cross and follow him and making him our first priority, then if that's true, we, we had better be clear who it is that asks this of us. And so from the very beginning, the answer to the question, what sort of man is this? The answer is that this man is in every way human as we are. And at the very same time, this man is in every way fully God among us. He is the man who is both fully human and fully God at the same time. And this is exactly in line with what the whole Bible teaches. See, on the one hand, the Bible teaches that he at times became weary in John 4, verse 6, that he was hungry in Matthew 4, verse 2, that in growing up, he increased in wisdom, Luke 2, 52, that he had a full range of human emotions, which included weeping and sorrow, marveling, learning obedience. I could go on and on. And yet at the same time, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, calls him our great God and Savior, John 1.1 says that he is with God and God at the same time. John 8.58 declares that he's always existed. Revelation chapter 22 verse 13 calls him the Alpha and the Omega. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that, that he's the radiance. Listen, not the reflection, but the actual radiance of God. 
that he upholds the universe, that he is the exact imprint of God himself. And Colossians 1 verse 15 calls him the image of the invisible God. I mean, here also I could go on and on. So what sort of man is this? And here is what we know with absolute certainty. He, Jesus, is both our brother and he is our God. He is both fully man in every sense of the word, while he has never ceased to be the one true God from all eternity. And it is this that explains what the twelve saw that day as they were in the midst of a howling storm. This man is a man, and yet this man is Lord of creation, for at a single word, as Matthew describes it, the howling storm became instantly calm, for nature can do none other than respond to the voice of its creator. I know there's so much more to say. How do these two natures, the fully divine nature of Jesus and the fully human nature, interact with each other? But I want to skip to a conclusion. I want to help us ask the question, what does all of this mean? You see, when you see Jesus, you're standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon. You're looking at majesty beyond what the human mind can grasp. You're plunged into a mystery that is so rich and vast and deep and fascinating that you're overwhelmed and you say, tell me more, plunge me more deeply into this. Not so I can fix my marriage, but show me something that makes me lose myself in him. For this man who fell asleep in the boat created every tree that gave rise to that boat. He created every molecule in the wind and the water, and he continually controls all things by his will. And if you begin to grasp that, it will literally suck away your breath. John, I think what you've talked about today is critical for us, but some might be out there saying, well, who really cares or, or why should I care? Yeah, it's such a good question, and let me try to answer it this way for our listeners. Imagine you would say to your wife, if you're, if you're a man, you would say to your wife, I mean, I don't really care who you are. I mean, after all, we're married, and that's the only thing that matters. And, and that's very similar to someone saying, well, the only thing that matters is if I'm saved, not who Jesus actually is. When we lose interest in our Savior, when we're not filled with a sense of, you know, staggering amazement of who he is, when we don't want to dig deeper into the mystery of the man who is Christ, I mean, I think we betray our lack of interest in the things that make up our salvation. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada exists to disciple God's people through Bible teaching that strengthens the church and builds the kingdom. We believe the church is essential to God's people, and in uncertain days, your prayers and support of the church is critical as God uses it to advance the gospel. To encourage and equip God's people, we're offering Dr. Newfeld's new series, Lessons for the Church, on CD for free. Request a copy for yourself, a friend, or place it in the church library. Back to the Bible Canada exists to build disciples who know the Bible and serve the church. So we encourage you to stand with your local congregation. Refresh your hearts towards it. Be engaged with its ministry. Extend grace to the saints. By caring for your church, you're loving the family of God. 
For more information or to order your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.